Good evening, everyone, and welcome tonight to the Alex, Alex, and Mo show, since we have two collectors on our show tonight. Uh, for tuning in, um, Alex and I are honored to have Dr. Alex Hill, a young uh, board-certified pelvic health therapist, uh, joining us tonight. Uh, the first three weeks of July, our podcast will specifically be dedicated to men's and women's pelvic health. So tune in as we have two other medical professionals for the upcoming uh, weeks of July uh, joining us to share their expertise. So welcome, Dr. Hill, to our show tonight. Thank you so much. I was so stoked when you reached out. I just, you two are just total amazing PTs. I like, I totally just fangirl over you. So thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. <laughs> well, 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 thank you. I, I didn't know that I was uh, that popular, but I appreciate it. <laughs> uh, hey, take any fangirling you can. I, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I take it where I can get it. Um, hey. <laughs> but but uh, thank you very much. I do appreciate you taking the time out uh, to be with us tonight. Um, you know, it, I'm looking forward to our discussions tonight. Obviously, you got a lot of knowledge in an area that uh, in the world of PT, I feel, is probably just up and coming, although it's, you know, been around for a while. Um, but it's just an area that, that hasn't been uh, touched, so to speak. So I think you you bring a wealth of knowledge to to the PT world to our show tonight, and and hopefully our viewers uh, can you know get some good info. You know, for the students that may be watching, it's something that they can you know learn from you and follow in your footsteps. So a lot of good stuff uh, this evening. Uh, but again, first and foremost, thank you for taking the time to be with us. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm really passionate about these two specialty areas and. When I have, you know, students DM me on social media or if I'm doing a mentoring session or if there's an established therapist that's interested in getting into these areas, I'm just like trying to reel them in any way that I can. And it's exciting to see the growth, like you said. Um, so, Alex, you're, you're pretty young. And I heard you talk at one of our Maryland uh, chapter uh, mentoring nights, and I was pretty impressed with your presentation. Uh, when did you first discover physical therapy? So I had a, I, in, growing up, I, I was an athlete. I was the, the jock in my family. I have, I have an older sister and, um, I had a lot of injuries. And so I was always kind of familiar with, um, you know, the athletic trainer and, and physical therapy, just with dealing with my own injuries. And I actually started out in college as pre-med in biochemistry. Um, and so I graduated with a biochem degree. But the more that I shadowed with physicians, the more that I realized that wasn't quite what I wanted, what I needed, and, and kind of what my personality was. I wanted to have fun with people and build rapport and be able to really see them for a long time and um, you know, not just have it be this quick, you know, 10 minute in and out the door kind of thing that a, a lot of physicians have to deal with. And um, so I had a really bad hip injury when I was in high school and that got misdiagnosed and kind of undiagnosed for about three years. Um, I actually had one physician that told me, you know, all the imaging is normal, all the tests are normal, like it's in your head, basically. Um, and so to hear that from a medical professional, when I was in 
near constant pain at this point. I was in college. I had trouble sleeping, sitting, walking to classes because of the pain, you know, it was devastating. And, you know, it took one medical provider to put their hands on me once I got to PT school, you know, literally did a scour test, reproduced my pain exactly. It was, ended up being a labral tear, um, had surgery, went to PT. Um, and that was my really first full course of PT, especially after a surgery that I had. Um, and just being able to see that difference at that time, I was again, in a biochem major. And so I was really pushing my rehab to go to Germany for a, um, uh, a research event. And so I, you know, working with my PT, setting the goal, seeing how much I could push myself, um, really got me into physical therapy. And so that's when I started shadowing more. I knew I wanted to, to get into PT. Um, as Alex mentioned earlier, uh, lately I feel like pelvic health has become the sexy thing in PT, you know, before yes. everybody wanted to go into <laughs> to sports rehab, but especially new grads, even, you know, the male students and everybody's like, oh, I want to do pelvic health. I, or it was like, I want to do women's health. And I was like, you know, why? I mean, <laughs> right. that was definitely, that, that was a defin- special person to do it. <laughs> I, I know, uh, even with the lymphedema stuff, I, I hear therapists saying they want to become more lymphedema certified. And I'm like, man, that's, it's tedious work. And the, the training is long, but to get a better background of, uh, you, your, you went to Kent State and then you yep. went to University of Florida. You did your residency at Duke. So yep. give us a background and um, why specifically pelvic health? Was it because of your injury? And do you think your experience being misdiagnosed and being told as a patient that stuff is in your head? Because that could actually make someone go crazy when people keep telling them, yep. or oh, we think it's in your head when you have like uncontrolled chronic pain. Yeah. How did that contribute to making you a better clinician? Yeah, absolutely. Great questions. So I didn't even, hadn't really heard of, you know, physical therapy for pelvic health or women's health or for oncology. I had, um, you know, family members and and close family friends who had gone through cancer and and battled cancer and and had PT. Um, But when I was in PT school, I had my first clinical rotation at a, a outpatient orthopedic clinic. And they had several pelvic health and oncology PTs there. And they were, it's kind of funny. They were always laughing. I could always hear laughter from behind the doors. And so my clinical instructor was out. I know, right? (laughs) So you wouldn't think that these two populations you'd be laughing and having fun. But um, so my, my clinical instructor was out for a couple of days and I was like, you know, do you mind if I just shadow and see like what's going on? Like, what is this really all about? And, um, as you mentioned, you know, just with my own history of, you know, basically being medical gaslighting, you know, that people were telling me that it, there was nothing wrong when I was in pain and um, working with these patients and seeing the profound impact that you could have within a single visit of one validating what they were feeling and, you know, what they were going through, that it was a pelvic floor issue. It wasn't just, you know, have a glass of wine and, you know, pain with sex is going to not not be painful, you know, um, being able to see that and the profound impact that you could have within a single session, multiple sessions, it changed people's lives. Um, and so I felt like when I saw that, I knew that that was what I wanted to go into. Um, I had a background in 
um, college, I started a, an organization, a chapter for Face AIDS, which was um, aimed at safe sex education and free HIV testing and, and doing a lot of campus events. So I was also comfortable talking about these kinds of things. Um, and so I just, like I said, with my personality, what I had gone through myself and just with kind of my skill set, and this was also the primary area in PT school that I kept wanting to learn more about. We had just had a couple hour lecture and that was it in terms of pelvic health and oncology, which that's a whole other topic um, with what our curriculum entails just in general on the PT level. Um, but I knew that that's what I wanted to go into and I kept wanting to search more and more and more. Um, I ended up having an eight week clinical rotation in women's health, but we just had, you know, some pregnancy postpartum population, a couple, you know, true pelvic health patients. And so I knew that I wanted more. I knew that coming out of an eight week rotation like that, it wasn't really truly setting me up to be entry level in these populations. And so that's what led me to then doing the residency at Duke to truly specialize in these areas. So did you go straight from PT school to, to residency? Yep. I moved there the week before I started my residency. I was waiting for my board exam results. So talk about stressful. Wow. Like moved in, like waiting to go. <laughs> my mom was up there with me. She can tell you I was a nervous wreck. <laughs> so that, that's actually the same way that I did it. Um, you know, I finished PT school, did a sports residency. Um, and in between moving to South Carolina, and, and getting ready for that, like I still wasn't licensed. I was still waiting because I had taken the test right before I moved. Like the week that I was moving, I took the test, pack up, moved to South Carolina. And I'm just like, man, like, I hope I pass. You know, like <laughs> I need to be licensed, you know. And, and I had even <clears throat> I had even sent the one of the program directors. I'm like, just hypothetical. Like, I did too. No, if I don't get a license, like what happens here, <laughs> you know, and, and thank God it never came to that. But, but yeah, right. that was, that was a, a very stressful situation. Yeah. So you go um, residency and then from residency, what happens after that? So after residency, I stayed at Duke for another two years. I was there for three years. Um, I was involved with their um, breast cancer program as an IRB study, which was really, really cool. I was able to get really dive into a lot of different research and speaking. And that's kind of what um, helped me get into those kinds of activities early on in my career. And I think that's one of the benefits of doing a residency. Um, and especially if you're looking at ones that involve research and teaching and that kind of thing is you get so much of that so early. Um, you know, I served on the board of directors for APTA pelvic health, then section on women's health, you know, after a couple years of being in practice and everyone else that I was serving with or established well-known clinicians. So it was very much imposter syndrome, but also amazing to be in that situation. But I don't think without the residency, the amazing mentors that I had, the experiences that I was able to kind of jump into early that I would have had those kinds of opportunities. Um, so I went to um, Texas, was there for a year, um, missed the East Coast, and then moved to Maryland in Annapolis. I was there for a couple years, went through the pandemic there. That was interesting as in, you know, for anybody that <laughs> the last three years, I feel like it's just been a blur. Um, 
and then just moved down to Florida last fall. What brought so, you to Florida? Uh, my parents. So I was selling Mo before the before we started. I grew up in Michigan, and you know, looking at colleges, I was like, oh, Florida, Florida's a little too far. Like I'd love to go, you know, be a Gator, but it's a little too far. And then, of course, after my freshman year, my parents moved to Florida. <laughs> so you know, here. right? So I think you know, with what a lot of people went through in the pandemic, not being close to family, not being able to see them, you know, that kind of thing, kind of reevaluating. Okay. Um, me and my fiance, where do we want to, you know, settle down at? We love Maryland, but we wanted to be in Florida close to my parents, get his mom down out of the cold in Minnesota. So um, it's been fun so far. Hot, very hot and humid now, but <laughs> the winters are perfect here. <laughs> so you're where in Florida are you? Uh, Jacksonville. Okay. Yep. Northeast. So, um, go ahead. Alex. Alex, it's interesting that you mentioned that you have a background in research because I ran across a study today uh, that said that uh, black women are disproportionately not considered for clinical trials after they've been diagnosed with breast cancer or any form of cancer. Um, I know you try to help to bridge the gap in health disparity with your Instagram post, which I love, by the way. So even though you're a fan of ours, I'm a fan of your Instagram um, page because it's very, it's very informative. Um, but I ran across that study today and I, I was like, wow, they like patients are not even told about the availability of clinical trials that they could go through after yeah. being diagnosed with any form of cancer. And it's, it's highest among uh, black and Hispanic women. So yeah. Uh, yeah. what do you think is contributing to that? You know, I think that's multifactorial. And I think you can also look at just general, you know, social determinants of health, the the disparities in, in cancer care. You look across all cancer types and black women are going to are, their their death rate is higher than any other group consistently in the U.S. Right. I think we need to make that distinction. Um and when you look at those disparities and you you look at the trickle down effect or you go up, right, if you go upstream or downstream, part of that stems from the lack of inclusiveness and involvement in clinical trials um, and in research. And, you know, there's a lot of reasons as to why that may be. You look at these larger hospital centers, um, you know, the populations that are in those areas, transportation, right? Like if some of these clinical trials require you to come to repeated appointments or repeated testing, that kind of thing, but a lot of people are having to rely on transportation to get there. Um, you know, there's, a, there's, I think, a lot of different things that can be at play. Um, you know, elephant in the room, you know, also just bias in healthcare, you know, with, with providers, you know, not wanting other, you know, a diverse group of people in the study or, you know, the study one was that 2017, 2015 and, and medical students still think that um, black folks have a higher pain threshold and are prescribing pain medications at a lower dosage. You know, if you have that bias coming into medicine, that's definitely going to impact the type of research that's being done. Um, I have literacy, an interesting, you know, <laughs> everything. <laughs> I have an interesting follow-up question because um, historically, 
black women, brown women, um, um, Alex could probably share from his experience, you know, being Hispanic. We don't tend to talk about, you know, pelvic floor issues or challenges that we have. So as a clinician, how do you, how are you able to get that, you know, past medical history and get them to be as descriptive in their, um, their subjective um, report? That's a, that's a really good question. And I think it's, it's interesting now that I've been down here for a little bit, you know, almost a year, the differences in regions as well. Um, I think just in general in the South, I'm having to, you know, go a little bit slower with, with patients in terms of, we may not get all that information the first visit. They need, may need to build that rapport a little bit more. Um, or they've never said those words before. They've never talked about that before. And so to now talk about it with a stranger is, is, you know, completely outside their comfort zone. But I do find that I'm having um, that type of interaction more in Florida versus like when I was in Maryland, for example. Um, and so I think that what I try to do is ask them and put it in their court, use motivational interviewing as well, um, see what their concerns are, what they're comfortable talking about and how they talk about things. So if they describe voiding as TT, then I'm, I may use TT, right. Until they get a little bit more comfortable talking about those things. Um, and I think also just normalizing talking about it. A lot of people just don't talk about it or they're told by their friend or their mother or grandmother that, you know, these things are normal as you get older, normal after you have a baby, you know, especially for, for women, it's just, you know, what we have to deal with kind of thing, which is very much not true, obviously. Um, and so I think, you know, explaining, you know, one in three women or people assigned at birth, female at birth, deal with some type of pelvic floor issue. You're actually not alone. This is very common. It's just that people aren't seeking help. One in three. Yeah. It's just that people aren't talking about not seeking help. They're not realizing they can, can do something about it. And then also, I think what's really helpful is I use um, pelvic models in the clinic. I have a, a for binary male and female models. And so explaining the anatomy of it and why I'm asking these questions, you know, I'm not asking about your bowel, bladder, and sexual function just for kicks. Like this is going to help you get better. And this is why I'm asking these questions. Once they understand that a little bit more, they're a little bit more open to talking about it. But again, we may not get all that information the first visit and that's okay. We work with them on what level they're at. Okay. <clears throat> Thanks for answering that. Um, I know as like a general physical therapist, I felt challenged when, because a patient can get very comfortable with you and they would reveal certain things to you. And mm -hmm. um, I felt at a loss that I couldn't help when they talked about um, incontinence because there's a, a huge difference um, having an overactive bladder and everybody keeps saying just do Kegels. But right. I found out today that Kegels is not good for someone who has an overactive bladder. Yep. Um, my yeah, parents used really. to joke with my parents used to joke with me like they know that every time we came home from something, um, and every ho house that I've bought, I specifically had to have a bathroom close to the front door and to the garage because yep. I knew as soon as I got home, key in the door syndrome. To... <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> that is a major trigger for people. Literally, key in the door syndrome. As you get closer to the door. It's essentially yeah. think of your bladder just getting into a habit, right? Like think about kids in the classroom 
Mm -hmm. right? They're waiting for the clock to be, be 3 p.m. They're getting ready, getting ready. As soon as it hits three, boom, they're out. That's the same thing as your bladder. It just gets trained for these certain situations. You know, getting walking into the house. I have some people, it's as soon as they get to their desk at work, when they start washing their hands, if they're in the shower. I mean, there's a lot of different triggers for people and we can work on all that. It's just retraining the bladder and the nervous system and not necessarily through kegels. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, people go Google that or, you know, they want to diagnose themselves and they would start doing the Kegel exercises for an overactive bladder, which makes it worse. So can you explain the difference between like when you have uh, urgency to go to the bathroom and have an overactive bladder, like some common things that someone can do to help to ease that before they go to like a, a specific medical professional to help with that? Yeah. Um, and so I think first we need to address this access to care, right? A lot of people might tell their primary care doctor, the primary care will refer them to a urogynecologist. And for the majority of people, they'll still get referred to, to physical therapy. We're going to be able to work with them usually a lot quicker than a urogynecologist can in terms of how, how much they're booked out um, and able to utilize these strategies by the time they get to urogyne. And then if they're having more issues or they need medication or you know, a secondary or tertiary line of intervention, then that can be good. Um, but, you know, pelvic PT should always be, you know, first line option. Before starting PT, though, to answer your question, it's like looking at your pattern of symptoms. So for you, right, it's getting into the house. Um, if it's triggered by um, bladder irritants, so something like coffee or tea, for me, it's tea and kombucha in the morning. I know that's going to make me have to go because these things are acidic. They are caffeinated. They're carbonated. These are things that are naturally going to irritate the bladder um, and make that urgency worse. So, you know, for example, for myself, before I go for a hike, I'm not going to have a whole bunch of tea and kombucha because I know it's going to have to make me keep going to the bathroom, right? I'll have water. I'm not going to cut back on my fluid intake, but I'm not going to drink those things. They're going to have to make me go um, before bed, not maybe having a glass of wine every night right before bed because that's going to make you have to get up at nighttime. So paying attention to what you're drinking, what your specific triggers are, and really like we just talked about, instead of immediately going to the bathroom when you get that urge to go, doing what's called an urgency drill. So taking a deep diaphragmatic breath, potentially doing some kegels, you know, if you don't have any pain, um, then it can usually be okay to do just a couple little squeezes. And that breathing, the kegels, and distracting yourself can actually help to get your brain and the nervous system off of the fact that the bladder's giving you all this attention saying, hey, I need to go to the bathroom now. So over time, we retrain that bladder saying, no, actually, you're not the boss. I always tell people it is brain over bladder. <laughs> and once okay. you recognize that, that's really helpful for a lot of people. Okay. So you obviously do pelvic, women's health, pelvic health, but you mm -hmm. also do oncology, mm -hmm. physical therapy, which I think is a very unique skill set. Um, I don't know how many therapists, you know, necessarily practice in, in both uh, specialties. What drew you to the oncology side of things? 
Um, so I, they kind of always were together when I first started shadowing with the pelvic PTs, they were both pelvic health and oncology. And so I had that exposure early on. Um, you know, I've had family members and close family friends who had battled cancer and seen what physical therapy could do, um, learning more about it in PT school and then, um, in the residency. So with women's health, it's interesting, um, that the description of specialty practice, the DSP, so basically what all falls under women's health, um, includes oncology. So it includes prostate cancer and breast cancer and gynecological cancer. Lymphedema actually falls under it as well. So when we get board certified, we actually have those, that knowledge that we need to take that exam. Um, and so for me, again, it was just, they were always together. And I just, I loved working with these patients and you know, I think a lot of people, you know, healthcare providers included, see cancer survivors as maybe frail or that they need to be easy on them and not push them. But really, they are so resilient. And I think that we are consistently underdosing them in terms of their exercise. There's more and more research coming out that cancer-related fatigue, side effects from chemotherapy, radiation therapy, neuropathy, pain, cording, lymphedema, all these things do better with exercise. But when you talk with most cancer survivors and you say, hey, like, what have you been doing for exercise? Oh, my oncologist told me just to, you know, go for a walk. That's There's zero dosing with that, right? They're not getting the amount that they truly need. So educating people on, you know, the ACSM guidelines for exercise for cancer survivors and helping them progressively reach that is so impactful. Um, I just, I was immediately drawn to it and I could see that these, these folks and these cancer survivors really needed also kind of a champion for them. Um, you know, as PTs in, in any specialty, we are, I think, more and more acting as primary care providers, right? Um, and we're fielding, okay, so you maybe need a referral to this person. We still need to go through their, you know, physicians to get those referrals. But, you know, being able to really help them find the, the other providers they need. So I routinely refer back to um, dietitians, to an exercise physiologist after they finish with PT, to a sex therapist, to family medical therapy. I mean, there's so many other different specialties that we can also help refer them to. I think being able to have that type of role also drew me to this specialty. Uh, <clears throat> I'm glad you mentioned that you guys uh, collaborate with like dietitians because um, from what I've seen, a lot of my patients who are going through chemo and radiation, they have, they don't have an appetite. A lot of them complain that there's no taste and mm -hmm. they can't consume the nutrients that I would think would be good enough for exercises because I still try to at least get like one to two sessions in a week with them when mm -hmm. they're going through uh, chemotherapy. But I'm realizing a lot more patients are getting like daily chemotherapy, which is uh, sorry, daily radiation, daily radiation. Sorry. Yeah. Um, and um, it, it, it does take a toll on them. So I also have to be empathetic and respect it if they don't feel like they're up to doing any exercises, but, you know, I start off, you know, at a zone where they're comfortable with, and then I try to progress as they start feeling stronger. 
Yeah. Yeah. So, and there may be some days where people come in and, you know, we just do bed exercises that day. They're still moving. They're still being active. We mm -hmm. might just need to, you know, bring it back a couple, a little bit while they're, while they're going through that. But the biggest thing that I keep telling people is just, even if you're doing ankle pumps in bed, like you gotta keep moving throughout treatment. Okay. And, um, go ahead, Alexa. Are you, are you in private practice now? Uh, no, I'm an outpatient. I'm a hospital-based system. Okay. Okay. But do you do stuff on your own? Uh, no, not right now. Okay. I'm right something? now I'm focusing more on the, the education and, and that kind of thing, kind of digital media. Okay. Is Outside that of clinical care. <laughs> Outside of clinical care. <laughs> is that something that is a goal for you or do you have interest in, in doing something in the private practice where you're just kind of developing your own thing from the ground up? I, I don't know. I think that's a very big question that I've grappled with over the years. When I first graduated, there was no way that I would have said yes in any, any universe. Um, but the longer that I've been in practice and, you know, talking with other people and seeing how private practice can be built, I've gotten a little bit more interested. I just don't know what that might look like because, you know, for me, it's a huge issue of access to care. Um, and, you know, I see these cash-based practices that are charging $200 for an initial eval. And you're thinking, how many people can do that, you know? Um, and as, as Mo said, I, it, for me, it's really important to have good access to excellent care for everybody. Um, and so, you know, I've seen some other people, you know, um, Elise, the Onco PT, um, there's a philanthro PT, you know, Doc J, I've been trying to see how other people are doing it with sliding scales and that kind of thing, but it's still, you know, trying to figure out how to get that good access to care while also not getting burnt out myself. Right. So it's just trying to figure out what that might look like. Um, or, you know, I really love teaching. That's why I started Onco Pelvic PT, um, was to start giving this information, like, you know, that people are nervous to talk about or don't want to talk about. Um, and so that's how Onco Pelvic PT started, but it's just, you know, an unanswered question that I'm not sure about. <laughs> There's a lot of things right now at my, at my current institution at, at I'm at UF health Jacksonville. Um, and you know, I'm helping to, to spearhead a transgender rehab program. We're building up our gynecological cancer program, our men's health program. So, you know, there's a lot of things and benefits of being in a larger hospital system or a safety net hospital. So we're able to see literally anybody, which is, was really important to me when I was looking at jobs and, and moving down here. Um, and that's one of the things that I, you know, I, I love about, about this job and being in a hospital system and having, you know, supportive upper management for these programs. It's, you know, the impact that you have with that versus a, a single private practice. That's another thing that I, I kind of struggle with. And again, why I like doing these, you know, different courses and, in, in, you know, social media education, because you're able to reach so many people. So lots of questions in my head about that. <laughs> Speaking about uh, digital uh, creation, um, one of your last posts, because it's strange when I saw you post it, uh, a friend of mine was joking with me saying that, oh, um, maybe we need to start investing in Depends. And, um, oh, yeah. <laughs> 
you 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 made <laughs> you made the post that you know the, there are companies that are making lots of money telling people that it's okay to wear wear that and pee instead of trying to fix the the root cause of the problem and you were giving some tips on it so we would advise anyone who's listening follow her on instagram and twitter at <laughs> uncle pelvic uh pt uh she has a wealth of information and i i do agree uh we we just like to slap band-aids on stuff and not take care of the issue um and um a lot of us have in our minds that because i've i've been doing uh research on like uterine fibroids Mm -hmm. And some of the comments that I see, like some black women make that they think it's something spiritual. Um, and I'm like, uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so those, as, as, a, as a black therapist, you know, how do you help to debunk some of the myths that people have grown up with pretty much all their lives and they still think holds some truth? Yeah. Because their parents told them so, their grandparents told them so. Right, right. Um, so I think coming at it in a in a non-judgmental way um, is very important, even if in my head I'm like, oh my gosh, like what's happening right now? You know, outwardly, I would never say that you want to validate what they've been taught, right? Where did that come from? Do you believe that? Why do you believe that? Because I think having an understanding of maybe why they developed something, whether it be fibroids or cancer or leakage or whatever, you know, I think that that can have a huge impact on somebody's also their prognosis um, and maybe an indication for, okay, you know, maybe not necessarily spiritual, but, you know, if something else is going on that I deserve to have this happen to me, or if they have a history of trauma, um, that that may be an indication to also kind of tag team with mental health provider and work with them on that. But I think first and foremost, is just kind of validating what they're thinking and then going into kind of sliding into some of the more evidence based information about, well, this is actually how things happen. This is the physiology behind it. Um, there's a, uh, um, two gals, Carla and Megan with physio stage. I'm not sure if you've heard of them. They, they just did a patient educator summit, but they do a lot of, um, really great content and education for PTs to become better patient educators. And so I followed a lot of their tips. And so I've changed how I educate people um, to really tailor even more than what I was doing before. Um, you know, I have a, a laminated piece of paper that I'll, I'll draw on and we'll work through things together. And so we make it interactive. So it's not just me, a provider telling them, no, you're wrong. It's let's kind of work through this together. Um, I, I have a question from someone. Um, uh, she is postpartum, um, mm -hmm. former athlete, um, wanted to start resuming, uh, working out. However, is having leakage when she's squatting and, um, lifting. Mm -hmm. Um, is that common postpartum? It is common, but there's, you know, you can do something about it, which, you know, I think that's the biggest thing is, you know, people say it's common, not normal. 
well, it's common is kind of normal after you just had a nine month pregnancy, you know, you just, your body went through a lot, right. But you don't have to deal with it. Um, so depending how far out postpartum they are, if they were exercising during pregnancy, um, those are all things that can, can have an impact on their prognosis. Um, you know, if they had a vaginal delivery and they had tearing, depending on the severity of the tear, if that damaged any of the pelvic floor muscles. So there's a lot that can, can be at play with it. Um, I found that besides just checking the pelvic floor, um, for these folks is looking outside the pelvis, right? It, the whole body is an entire kinetic chain. So if we're only looking at the pelvis, we're missing the entire rest of the body and things that could be at play. So I'll routinely watch, like, how are you squatting? Am I seeing, you know, deviations or issues with your hips, in your back, with your breathing? Are you holding your breath at the bottom? When you're at the bottom of a squat, your pelvic floor essentially lengthens. And so if it's already lengthened and you're holding your breath, you're already putting yourself at a higher risk for having leakage. So a lot of times I'll work with people on um, just breathing mechanics, how to properly properly breathe. There's no best way to breathe, right? But what will work best for you, coordinating that with their movement. We may need to strengthen the core and glute muscles. You know, there's a lot of different things that we can do to address it, but it's not necessarily just doing a whole bunch of kegels or, you know, kegling at the squat. We need to figure out what's actually going on with it. Uh, what about those who leak with uh, coughing and sneezing? Yep. So a relatively sim simple fix for that is something called the knack. So it would be where you kegel as you cough. So you would breathe in, kegel, <coughs> cough, and then relax. Um, and so that's typically what we'll instruct people to do, but only obviously after we do a pelvic exam, we make sure that there's nothing else that could be contributing to it. If they're having, um, you know, constipation, constipation with that stool pressing onto the bladder can make it more likely for you to leak as well. So for a lot of people, we also work on their bowel issues to help with the bladder issues, which people don't. They're like, why are you asking about my poop? I'm like, well, they're really close together. <laughs> So Alex, we need that of... for home health patients. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so, so you mentioned you mentioned being obviously you work in a hospital system, mm -hmm. uh, and you seems like you're spearheading a lot of different projects within the the pelvic oncology. Mm -hmm. What relationship do you guys have with the OBs? We have a really great relationship with the OBs, the Eurogynes. Um, you know, I something I really like about the system and what I've been, I think, very fortunate with all of the systems that I've been in um, is that the the physicians, the NPs, you know, all the advanced providers really are, are collaborative. They want to do what's best for the patient. Um, a lot of times I find that there's maybe room for an additional in-service for um you know, best practice or updated practice guidelines, the fourth trimester pregnancy, you know, getting people in postpartum at six weeks, sometimes before, um, you know, not just, okay, you're six months out, let's, you know, you're still having painless sex, you're still having leakage, okay, now let's send you to PT, like, let's get them in sooner. Um, so educating, I think, is has been really helpful. Um in terms of what we can do as PTs, what our scope is. Um, we just did an in-service with, with our gynoc team, our gynecological oncology team. And, you know, we were talking about everything from oncology to, you know, 
cancer-related fatigue, lymphedema, and that's lymphedema in the abdominal region, genital region, legs, um, dilator training if they've had radiation, pelvic floor training, and they didn't even know everything that we did. And so I think continuing to educate all these different specialties and providers on what we can do, when to refer, um, and also, you know, that you can, like I mentioned before, you can refer to us before referring to a specialist. We have doctorate degrees. We know when it's appropriate to treat somebody versus when we need to refer them out. And I think, again, with them having a better understanding of what we can do and what our depth of knowledge is, especially in these specialty areas, has been really helpful. Uh, speaking about referring, do you guys ever refer to holistic practitioners such as like sexologists and stuff? Yeah, so I'll, um, in Jacksonville, there's not many um, sex therapists. There's one in um, in North Carolina that I will never forget because, you know, as a new grad, I was like, what is a sex? Th like, what do you do? <laughs> and she was just so gracious and, you know, kind of explaining everything. And, um, you know, she's got a great podcast that I'll refer patients to and that kind of thing. Um, you know, acupuncturists, there's, you know, growing research, not, you know, level a excellent research but there is growing research that acupuncture can be very helpful for for different conditions um myself i have ibs so i have my own gut issues that i've been working on and you know the biggest thing for me wasn't the medications i use those as you know if i'm having a flare-up or something like that as needed but the biggest thing for me was working with a dietitian and, and an acupuncturist and with counseling um, you know, I, and especially for, for BIPOC, BIPOC folks, it's important to talk about mental health and the role mental health has in our conditions and especially pain conditions, these chronic conditions and managing that better. And so, you know, telling them my own story and they're like, oh, well, if you've done counseling, okay, I guess I could maybe do counseling. Um, you know, it just takes one person for them to, to hear that they did something to be able to have a little bit of courage to do it. Um, but I love working with, with other practitioners. I think it's really helpful. Okay. Thank Good to know. Um, one other question, um, assuming it's from a male, um, talking about dripping after he uses the restroom for number one. Yep. So that can either be a terminal dribble or a post void dribble. So if you urinate, kind of shake, and then you're still having some dribble, that'd be a terminal dribble, meaning it's right at the end of urination versus a post void dribble. You go pee, you wash your hands, you start to walk away from the toilet or the urinal, and then you have the dripping, then that would be a post void dribble. Um, both of those, um, you know, there can be a lot of different reasons for why that may be happening. Um, but sometimes it could be from an overactive pelvic floor, not allowing the urine to completely release from the urethra. So there's some urine left over in the urethra. Um, depending on the age, it could be from an enlarged prostate. Um, you know, there's a whole lot of things that, that could be at play, but that is something that I'll get referrals for um, in PT and we'll ask about all those things. You know, do you have that issue if you sit to urinate versus if you stand? If that's the case, for me, that's saying that it's probably more likely a pelvic floor issue because when you sit, your pelvic floor is able to relax much better than if you're standing because they're stabilizing muscles, right? They're going to help support everything. Um, so there's little things. I was, was going to ask. I was. I was going <laughs> to ask a very dumb question. No, like there Channing, are no dumb I feel questions. Like, I feel like Channing Crowder this at uh, this moment. But are you saying that it's better to 
to sit and pee because you know a lot of women will probably be happy to hear you say that so they don't miss, miss the ball <laughs> and pee all over the place. But for the saying- ma- <laughs> for the majority of people assigned male at birth, standing is typically fine. <laughs> But to you help know, with the dripping, the post But to help with the dripping, a- you know, try sitting. You know, that uh-huh. might help. If it does, then, you know, it might be a pelvic floor <laughs> issue. In that case, then you definitely want to go see a pelvic floor PT to address anything else that might be going on. Um, not uncommon, you know, if there's urinary issues, there for there to also be sexual issues because those nerves and those functions are all very close together. So, um, you know, I've worked with people who have, leakage at climax, um, pain with, you know, erectile function or orgasm. And it's not, again, it's not uncommon that you see both of those things together. So, yep. Uh, we ask all so, the questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I, I noticed like with certain things, like, as I told you, I've been doing a lot of, um, research on like uterine fibroids, like what encourages the growth and stuff. Like that. And alcohol was something that they mentioned does encourage your growth. So for men um, who are having these post-voiding dribble, Mm -hmm. um, as you put it, does alcohol consumption contribute to that as well? It potentially can. I'm not sure of any specific research off the top of my head. Um, If that contributes to, say, like an overactive bladder or something like that, then that potentially could. Um, usually with alcohol, we'll see that more of like with an overactive bladder or urgency, that kind of thing. Okay, good to know. Have you had any experience working with like spinal cord injuries and, and the pelvic, you know, uh, impairments that, that can mm-hmm. come along with that? Yep. And, and... Um, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was gonna say, and, and what, you know, obviously, because it's a little different when there's neurological involvement, as we all know, um, yep. you know, that's going to kind of change uh, the playing field a little bit. Um, but, you know, what, if any positive results, have you been able to to deal in, in that population? Yeah, so um, I have experience working with the neurological population. So that includes spinal cord injury, um, Parkinson's, uh, you know, the whole gamut of things. Um, a lot of times it comes down to um, the type of neurological insult, the severity of it, the chronicity of it. Um, but also it will come down to just a lot of education and behavioral management. Um, so, you know, if they really don't have, you know, if they have, for example, a neurogenic bladder, um, where it's flaccid. So it's not able to contract to get urine out. Um, there's different maneuvers that we can teach them timed voiding. We don't necessarily teach, you know, the intermittent catheterization, but we can help make sure that they're getting the proper amount of fluid that they have, you know, that timed voiding or timed capping schedule, um, avoiding bladder irritants, um, making sure that they're managing the constipation, um, you know, caregiver, family member, friend, education as well. So a lot of times it's it, the behavioral management is very helpful, even if the pelvic floor, even if we can't do a whole lot with the pelvic floor. So you mentioned proper fluids. Mm-hmm. What is the right amount <laughs> of fluids? Great question. And as always in physical therapy, it depends. <laughs> 
So, you know, everyone thinks oh, I need to have at least eight ounces, eight, eight glasses of water. I need the 64 ounces. You know, it really depends. You know, yesterday I was out doing a bunch of yard work. It's Florida. It was, I think, 80 degrees and 87% humidity. I obviously need a lot more water yesterday than today. And I was indoors treating patients. Um, in general, so there's one recommendation of half of your body weight in fluid ounces. Um, when you actually like calculate that for yourself, it's actually a lot. <laughs> um, I generally go on the rule of a couple rules of one, your urine should look like the color of light lemonade. So if it's completely clear, you're maybe overdoing it. And if it's a really dark yellow, you're, you ain't getting enough. <laughs> so get up that water, right? Um, if some people want a hard, fast rule, then I'll, I'll start with, you know, half of your body weight in ounces and just see how you feel. Like if you feel waterlogged, you know, don't drink that much, right? But if you're only drinking when you start to feel thirsty, you know that your, your body's already triggering that you're starting to get dehydrated. So we don't want to ever get to that point. Um, so, you know, it's helpful to just kind of sip throughout the day versus try to chug a bunch of water because research shows if you chug a bunch all at once, you know, oh man, I didn't drink my water today. Let me just get in a glass right before bed. A, that's going to make you have to get up at, at nighttime, right? Just drink all that water. But it, when you drink a lot of water quickly, it actually triggers the kidneys to produce more urine quicker than if you're just kind of sipping it throughout the day. Um, other considerations would be, what are you eating? If you're having like you know, a ton of fruit, right? A ton of vegetables. It has a lot of water content in it that people don't really think about. So that's another consideration for people to have as well as are you also getting that water and other food in your diet as well? So it really depends. <laughs> and then a follow-up question to that is what's a good cutoff time before bed to take in fluid? It depends, of course. <laughs> in general, in general, you want to avoid at least an hour before if you're already getting up a bunch at nighttime. Some people I have them cut it off like two to three hours before and just do little sips. Um, but, you know, for the majority of people, at least an hour before, as long as you're not chugging water, you should be good. Um, well, Alex and I are both in uh, home health and we have, well, I know I have clients who said, when I ask, okay, how much water did you drink today? Like if I'm there, like about two o'clock for the resident, they'll be like, meh, they'll spawn to the bottle and it will be like three quarters full. But then they will be like, oh, I, I had coffee. I had uh, two Diet Coke or I had, or I took a sip of cranberry to help yep. me pee. Yep. And I'm like, that doesn't come, but they're like, it's liquid. <laughs> right. so, <laughs> but they're all bladder irritants. <laughs> and so they're diuretics, can, right? Can, <laughs> you, explain, make you, can you explain that, that it's, it's not the same? Right. So you do want, so I can't remember what the exact ratio you, you have, I've seen different ones that are recommended, but you know, out of your total fluid intake during the day, two thirds of it should be water, for example. Um, so if you're having diet, any kind of pop, any diet pop. I mean, that the, the artificial sweetener and that alone is going to trigger you. I've had some people just simply switch from a diet pop to a regular pop if they really just do not want to give up like the Coke, for example, and just literally switching to regular helped their mm -hmm. symptoms because of that artificial sweetener, right? Um, so in general, like, yeah, the other fluids are fine to have, but 
if they're all irritants and that's not, that's not helping you, you're just making, you have to go more, you know, um, for people that don't like drinking water, um, you know, I recommend different things like, um, you know, infusing it with like mint or cucumber or something like that. Um, or there's, um, like noon tablets that I'll recommend people to get. It doesn't have anything artificial and it doesn't have any sugar. So for anyone diabetic, they don't need to worry about that. Um, or like herbal tea, or if you want juice, like cut it with some water or, you know, there's different things that you can still do to enjoy drinking things, but not to the point where it's having you to have all these symptoms and you're not getting the fluid that you need. Okay. So a couple of questions. When you say a bladder irritant, mm -hmm. what exactly does that mean? Does it cause the bladder to contract more? Yep. To, okay. Yep. So basically causes it to contract harder and faster. Now, what effect of anything does that have with the kidneys as far as producing more urine? Like, do they so, go hand in hand? Typically, but it's more so impacting the bladder lining. So, and you'll see this even more so for um, women who are, met, are menopausal or postmenopausal because they've lost that estrogen in the body and that actually makes the lining of the bladder more um, irritable, I guess. Um, if you then have these bladder irritants that didn't really bother you before, but now they do, it's because it's just, it's just so much more irritable with drinking these things. Gotcha. Mm. All right. Now moving on to another serious topic. I mean, obviously here recently we had, uh, the Supreme court overturned, uh, you know, Roe versus Wade. You mentioned earlier, obviously you're a, a uh, pelvic health specialist. You said you served on the board of directors at one point. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there was discussion in PT Twitter uh, yep. about, you know, whether the APTA would make a statement. Uh, when? And <laughs> when they would make a statement. Right. You know, and, and all those things. And, and there was discussion among, you know, therapists that said, you know, why should they? Why should they? make a statement? Why do they need to make a statement? Um, I'd like to hear from you as a pelvic health specialist and a former board member, uh, A, what this means to you and your practice, and B, as somebody who is basically in the trenches, deals with these patients, has access to these patients, like what effect and how this could change how you do your job moving forward. Yeah, I think that's that's a great question. And I'll preface by saying this is my personal opinion. This doesn't have any reflect anything on employers or anything else like that. It's my own personal opinion. Um, you know, I I think that, you know, this is the right to choose. This is this is healthcare. Um, you know, and I applaud the APTA pelvic health. Um, I believe the pediatric academy may also put out a statement and APTA for putting out statements that this is healthcare, this, you know, will impact us. Um, you know, I've seen some things that are kind of going around social media where people are telling people to not tell their medical providers that they're pregnant because if something happens, then that would be one additional person that could be liable for them getting in trouble to say the least. Um, which has a huge impact on our care. For me and pelvic health, 
Um, you know, in general, general practice, we don't perform internal exams during the first and second trimester. Um, if I don't know that somebody's pregnant because they don't feel comfortable sharing with their other providers that they're pregnant, you know, that could in increase some liability issues. It could increase some, some safety concerns. Um, and I think about, you know, some of my cancer survivors and them finding out that they're pregnant and having to choose between having a pregnancy or getting chemotherapy or having to delay their cancer care. Um, and not having that ability to choose is going to definitely impact how I would treat them both on the pelvic health, women's health, OB side, and on the cancer side. Um, so when people say that this, this isn't a PT issue, I, I personally disagree with that um, and the impact that it will have on, on our patients and how we treat them. Hmm. Well, you both live in a very interesting state. Live and work in a very interesting state. I, I, yes, I, I would definitely. Yeah, have to say. Yep. Um, yep. Wow. Looking forward to voting this fall. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be good. It'll be. Good. Yeah, it's. I, mean, um, I, I think as a whole, as we've seen um, over the course of the last couple elections in this country. I mean, our country is pretty evenly split. Um, mm -hmm. And and because of that, you know, anything could happen. Right. Anything could happen. And, and a lot of times what you think is going to happen is actually what doesn't happen. And, and yep. yet, you know, something else. And and everybody has their views. Everybody has their ways and, and what they feel is is right, wrong and better for them and, and whatever, you know, like, yeah, it, 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 it's, it's always something that just kind of is what it is. But right. anyway, I, I do thank you for for your your opinion on the matter, because, again, it, it's very important that as with anything else, we always listen to the people that are experiencing. Right. Like we always mm -hmm. like to talk about how other people should feel, how other people should act. But we've never spent a minute, a day in, in that person's shoes, um, whether yeah. we're talking about, you know, healthcare, access to healthcare, or as clinicians and, and what these clinicians have to go through and clinicians like yourself, you know, how this affects your practice. Um, you know, like if there is, it doesn't even add up, but as an example, you know, if something came across where, you know, orthopedic sports PTs now have to change the way that they practice because of a law that's yeah. been passed. You know, I wouldn't expect a pedi pediatric therapist or, or somebody like yourself who doesn't necessarily deal with them on a day to day basis right. to really say how that person should feel, how they should treat her, you know, whatever yeah. the case may be. So I, I do thank you for, for your opinion on the matter, because we need to hear from people like yourself. We need to know what it is that's going on, what you see with your patients, what your patients feel comfortable telling you and mm -hmm. how that impacts, you know, everything moving forward. So um, with that, thank you very much for spending time with us. It, it was awesome. I learned a ton. Um, so did I. My pleasure. So, so, uh, so did I. It's very good questions. This is information that needs to get out. This is information yep. that needs to get out. Um, you know, people are embarrassed scared whatever it is and and there's help out there you know they don't have to be alone they don't have to go through this alone 
you know, there's there's people and partners that that can get help and, and improve their quality of life. So a lot of knowledge that you shared. You're doing awesome with the Onco Pelvic PT. So kudos to you. Keep that up. Thank you. <laughs> um, you know, Alex, I told her, was it last year I told you this, that I think you're going to be the youngest uh, yeah. of <laughs> yeah. the, I, I told her that. So I, I mean, remember, remember honestly, that I like, told her that. <laughs> with, without, without getting too into it, like I, I think uh, that, I don't know how old you are. I'm not going to ask you how old you are, but I'm pretty sure you're younger than 33. Me. Okay. See, um, I, I think, I think you're a shining star. I, I, I legit honestly feel that see? way. I, I see, think I that, I think that what you've done in a short amount of time uh, could, could go a long way in, in, in our profession and specifically in, in your specialty area. Um, so keep it up because like I said, it, it's, it's a new area that's untapped. Uh, and, and it's now, as, as Mo mentioned earlier, the sexy thing to do it. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that you're on it. I think you're, you're doing it the right way and, and, and doing it for the right reasons, which is to help the patients. And right. I've always felt that as long as you do that and you put the patient first and, and all that stuff, all the, all the other rewards and the good things that we want are going to come. You know, whether that down the road means you open up your own practice or you just grow a program that now becomes, you know, world renowned because of something that you've done, you know, in Jacksonville. Even though you went to that school not too far from there that we're not going to get into. Um, you know, Says the it, guy drinking from the Cowboys Cup. I know, still, I saw that. It's still, um, it's still awesome to see what you're doing. Uh if anything that Mo can I and I can help you down the road, please don't hesitate to ask us. We will always be here um, to help you however we can. So thank, thank you, you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for, for spending time with us. And as usual to our followers, thank you for guys for watching, tuning in. This is your first time watching. Subscribe, follow us, like us, comment, all that fun stuff so that we can continue to put out the great content. Um, Mo. Yes, and don't forget to follow uh, Dr. Hill at Uncle Pelvic PT. She's on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, she has a wealth of informative knowledge for you. Uh, she also um, has a link tree where uh, she recommends products if you're going through uh, chemotherapy, radiation, lymphedema. What else do you... Um, yeah, really uh, anything offer. pelvic health, oncology, um, home exercise stuff. You know, what do you do after PT? What can you use? Water bottles yeah. to sip from, not chug, right? <laughs> yeah. So so please follow her. You would not be disappointed. So thank you again, Alex. And goodbye from the Alex, Alex, and Mo show tonight. <laughs> thank you so much. You. I, I really appreciate it. No, it was a pleasure. Everybody have a good night. Good night.